0: And today, on our final rewind before Jack returns, uh, we are rewinding back to episode 535, Cooking with Garden Bounding, Game Meat, Preps, and More. It was first published on October 20th, 2010. Not a lot of stuff to add to the intro of this one. This is just a great, fun show, and I'm glad it worked out to be the last one and on a Friday. But, uh, there's some cool stuff in this, like, um, I this is I think the episode where I really talked the first time about beer bread and I you know bread you got to minimize how much you eat of it all but it's you know there's a reason it, it, our daily bread right like it is the, the, one of the most nourishing uh, long term things that have been with man since civilization and the dawn of agriculture for a reason and beer bread's pretty good if I you know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have bread I want to make some at home and, and whipping up some beer bread's easy also talk about Irish soda bread, bruschetta, uh, pasta and arugula. These are all things you can do with your preps. I talk about bacon, jalapeno, dove, and anybody from Texas that ever dove hunted probably knows how to do that. Uh, Otherwise, it can be adapted to other things. I talk about using rabbits and squirrels and venison today. Um, Summer squash is something that many of you have in abundance right now. Roasted winter squash. How to make just simple, good, delicious chicken soup. Uh, Bean and sausage soup, potato sausage and kale, which is awesome. Grilled deer heart. If you ever do that, you'll stop throwing deer hearts away. And any of your hunting friends that don't use the heart, you'll have them save them for you. Uh, Bacon wrapped deer backstrap. I mean, that just you can't mess that up unless you overcook it. And don't do that. I'll give you some tricks of the trade today. It's just a fun show to wrap up uh, this uh, 8 Days of Rewinds. I really hope you guys enjoyed this this blast through the past. I'll be uh, getting home tomorrow, and uh, be back on the air with you Monday morning. And uh, you know, I'm always apologetic when I leave, but the reality is, we all need our vacations at time. I needed this one. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Again, we're rewinding back. Episode 535 Cooking with Garden Bounty Game Meats Preps and More. Originally aired October 20th, 2010. And you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Um, I want to get ready into today's show because I'm excited because I like to talk about cooking. Um, why do I want to talk about cooking today? Well, you know, about. Three, four weeks ago now, I had Chef, maybe it was five weeks ago, Chef Keith Snow on to talk about harvest eating, cooking with local ingredients, cooking with ingredients out of your backyard, seasonal cooking. You know, you, you cook winter squash in, in the late fall and winter, you don't make it in, you know, June, right, where it's being shipped in from Chile, uh, or something like that. And, uh, though, I'll tell you what, some of your winter squashes, folks, if you take care of them the right way, they'll store till June. Uh, I have I pushed it to the limit to see how they would go, and I've been able to get winter squash without refrigeration, just stored in a cool, dry area to store for up to eight to nine months. Uh, So maybe that wasn't the perfect example. But the whole point was cook with what you have around you, not with imported crap. And uh, that went over really well, and Chef Keith is a really awesome guy. He's worked at some really premier restaurants He's done a lot of really cool things, and he's a hell of a lot better of a, of a chef, because I'm not even a chef, but let's just say a hell of a lot better of a cook than I am, and he knows a hell of a lot more than me. Um, but the show went over well, and people seemed to like it, and people said they wanted to do more with cooking. So I decided maybe that would be a good idea today, and I can tell you about some of the things that I cook for my family, uh, specifically that either use my preps, the use stuff that comes from my backyard, or the use things that come from the forest or the plains when I go out and I hunt and or gather. And I actually have tons of these things we can talk about. So if you guys like this show, let me know, and I'll try to do more shows because I could probably put together about ten of these with different things that I cook that are, you know, things that aren't really unique. They're not my recipes, and and I'll talk about more on that toward the end uh, about what what traditional actually means. But some of the stuff I put my own little flair into, uh, but things that we use, things that we do, things that when I'm cooking it, my family's like, oh, great, you're doing that tonight. Um... But the real reason I wanted to do this is because we're preppers. Uh, whether you call yourself a survivalist, a homestead, or whatever, if you have your home set up so that you can do without for a month or more, to me, you're a prepper. You're preparing for that potential. And it doesn't matter why you're preparing, whether you are uh, a person that's preparing because you believe we're in for real civil unrest and strife and danger on a national level, or you're just doing it because you're smart like your grandparents and you know that you never really do know when you're going to need a little bit more, we're all preppers. And most of us try to share what we do a little bit, at least with trusted people, closer people. And cooking is universal, and it's a great way to spread prepping. It's also just a great way to spread relationships. If you think about it, when people actually start to become friends, what what is one of the main things they do as a bonding experience is one will have the others over to their home and cook for them and share a meal. It's one of the most... Intimate, common things that humans do, right? There's plenty of things that are more intimate than having a meal with somebody, but it's things that are commonly done. It's probably the most intimate experience that we have with people, especially people that are maybe start out a meal as a stranger and end a meal as a friend. It's a very primal thing. It goes back to when men sat around the campfire with, with a stranger that came by and talked about trading with them or whatever, and, and, you know, breaking bread. All of this stuff is, is in us. So if we're going to build relationships and we're going to share what we do, cooking is a great way to do that. It's a great way to expose people to even just gardening. When you bring someone over and you cook with fresh ingredients, it, it, it peaks through. How did you do this? So I just threw it in the pan and cooked it. It tastes this way because it came out of there 15 minutes before you got here. Right. Um, I also want to kind of point out something that I think a lot of people don't get. There's a huge health food craze, right? But the health food craze involves people going to like Wendy's and McDonald's for fast food and instead of getting a burger, getting a salad. Well, a, a salad from Wendy's, if you put the dressing on it and everything, is probably worse for, worse for you than the bacon double cheeseburger that they sell, the big bacon classic or whatever it is. Um, and, and that thing is garbage too. It's not so much what we eat in America today, it's what's in what we eat. And when you learn to cook for yourself, you get other options. If you go buy chicken casserole in the freezer section, it's convenient. We do stuff like that ourselves once in a while because you don't always have the time to cook and you don't always want to go out to eat so I can pop it in the oven in 45 minutes We're for eating. But I guarantee you it's not made with organic chicken. Uh, there's probably corn in it. It's probably GMO corn. And there's probably a million other s- dyes and, and, and all kinds of you know, preservatives and hormones and crap in there where if you're cooking, you can get organic chicken, or at least you can get chicken that's free of hormones. You know, It's up to you what you want to buy, how you want to spend your money, but at least you control it when you learn to cook. And most people could eat the same amount of food that they are now I believe even lose a little bit of weight if they cook for themselves. Because you're going to eat less if you cook for yourself. It's not as easy as just grabbing a handful of something, shoving it in your beak. But definitely be healthier. Even if it's the same type of food. Because if you're controlling what goes in it, all the excess crap, garbage, and sugar that's in our food doesn't go in there. So those are some of the reasons that I wanted to uh, do this today. What I wanted to start out with, though, instead of just a bunch of recipes, which I have a ton of recipes for you today, um, is some basic techniques, because I learned from my partner, Neil Franklin, uh, that if you learn certain techniques, you can then take these techniques, and you can use them to do thousands and thousands of other things, but it all starts with good, solid, basic technique, so I wanted to go over five techniques that I use with you today for different types of cooking. Two of them I mentioned when Keith was on, but I kind of said, like, there's some examples. Do you have some other examples? And he went into making a pan sauce off of that as a springboard, but he never addressed the two things. I was hoping you would, honestly, but I'm going to do it now. The first one is called a mirepoix. Now, I've actually had a lot of people email me since that show and say, Jack, what is a mirepoix spelled all kinds of different ways? And I can't find it on Google or whatever. That's probably because you put it as two words, and it's like M E A R. P-O-U-A is like the way some guy emailed me about it just today. Mirepoix is a single word. It's French, and it's spelled M-I-R-E-P-O-I-X, mirepoix. And you might think, what do I need to know this mirepoix crap for? Because it's a great base for anything that you could ever want to cook with kind of a country French flair to it. French food, I think, is largely misunderstood. People think of frogs and snails or whatever. And and there's, you know, there's a a side of French cuisine that is that. But the whole countryside of France is very traditional cooking that actually doesn't look that much different than a lot of American cooking if you take out some of our heavy use of uh, batter. (laughs) You know, it's a little bit lighter. Um, And uh, mirepoix is a good base for just about anything you would make. Certainly stews, soups. Uh, roasting, anything you'd want to do like that. It's so simple. It's two parts of onion to one part of carrot to one part of celery. That's it. And uh, the traditional thing is it's cut, they're cut up very fine, they're sautéed in a pan, and that's your base, and then you cook whatever you want on top of that. Or you add it to something, or, or what have you. I've even seen dishes where they cook the heck out of it, and then they basically strain it, and they actually remove the bulk, the, the fiber, And uh, just use the and there's all different ways that that's done. I've even seen it used basically uncooked, added to something, and still called a mirepoix. But that's what it comes down to that ratio. And there's there's a reason for the ratio. The first time I talked to a chef about this, and I said, "Well, I do pretty much the same thing when I make a stew, but I just use like this many carrots and this much celery." He's like, "No, see, you can play around with ingredients and all," he said, "but for the base, this ratio is perfect." to give an earthy flavor that is very traditional. So that's a mirepoix. So you can take that and you can use that in so many ways. The counterpart of the mirepoix used by uh, French Cajun cooks is what's called the Holy Trinity. Now, this isn't the Holy Trinity you know you learn about in catechism or whatever, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, this is uh, the Holy Trinity in, in cooking in, in a Cajun uh, environment. And the celery and the onions are still there. But the carrots go away, and you replace them with bell pepper. So celery, onion, and bell pepper. And, and my understanding is it's not as coin uh, a, 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 a phrase here. A, a, what do you call it? A uh, no pun intended. As religious about the ratio, you know, two, one, and one. Uh, but you just use a base of green peppers, onions, and celery for a lot of your Cajun cooking. You you could go anywhere from there. But these two techniques. Are two really good bases. The next one is I see a lot of people that are um, wanting to cook with rice, and they get very frustrated with rice because no matter what they do, the rice comes out sticky. It's not fluffy. It, it just doesn't come out right. I've seen people buy steamers, and and there's there's a right way to do rice for whatever you're going to cook, uh, or add to, add add you know put on top of rice or whatever. Uh, and you can do it in all these traditional ways, but there's also a simple, easy way to do rice. And once you do this, you'll probably never screw around with anything else ever again, unless you're making a certain kind of rice in a certain type of way. Cook your rice like pasta, okay? Don't measure the water for a cup of rice or two cups of dry rice and put it in there and let it absorb all the water. Take a big pot, put more water in there than you're ever going to need to make the rice, get it boiling, get it up to a rolling boil, a little bit of salt, a little bit of oil, uh, add it to the water. Just a couple drops of like olive oil or something like that help with the starch release. Throw your rice in there like you're cooking risotto pasta. Boil it and, and take a fork. And when you can take it out with a fork or a spoon and taste a piece and it's done, it tastes finished, right? Dump it into a colander just like spaghetti. Rinse all the excess starch it, oh, off of it. Put it aside, leave it cold. And when you're going to use it in your cooking, drop it in at the end. They'll heat it through or warm it up in a microwave or what have you. Do that. You can, you can, you know, get off of the minute rice, get off of the boiling bag rice, all that crap. Use real regular rice that belongs in your storage. You can cook with it whenever you want to and you'll never deal with sticky rice again. Neil Franklin, again, my, uh, my business partner with Franklin Spearco, who's kind of a real gourmet cook himself, is the one that taught me that. And, and uh, I don't know where he picked it up, but it's, It's made me more likely to use rights. The next one is what I call braising greens, and I I I call this a separate technique because I see it overdone so many times, and I think that a lot of people aren't even really kind of I don't know they're just not they don't even think of doing this, and they don't realize how many things it can go with. The key with braising greens is you got to get your greens all cut up to the size that you're going to want them to be. Use a hell of a lot more than you think you're going to use because they're going to shrink down. Wash them, completely dry them. Get one of those salad spinner things or whatever. You really want them dry when you do this. Um, in your pan, and I like to use a wok for this, I like to use olive oil or peanut oil. Get it good and steam and hot. A little bit of fresh garlic, add that to your oil and just let it start to, when it starts to, to, to fry up a little bit, starts to brown. Then throw your greens in there. And it could be any, you know, it could be mustard greens, it could be kale, it could be collards, it could be swiss chard, it could be spinach, it could be arugula, it could be amaranth. Uh, in fact, I do braised amaranth a lot. But as soon as it shrinks down and it softens, get it out of there right i mean that's the big thing if you overcook it it gets too mushy it gets too... but if you start doing that you'll start to realize there's all kinds of things you can do with all those different great greens out of your your garden here's what i did yesterday i went outside uh to the garden i wanted to make lunch I went through the garden. I got one great big, uh, long big gym, uh, uh sweet pepper and one jalapeno. Threw those in a bowl. The tomatillos, the second wave of those are coming in, but only a few of them are ripe. There's like thousands on there. There was like, like two or three that were ready to go. I, I picked those. Um, then I went and started looking for greens. I uh, have a couple, you know, a couple volunteer, uh, Hopi red diamorants that were coming up. Just cut those off and, and cut them up. Uh, took some Swiss chard, took some New Zealand spinach little bit of arugula because that's just coming around for its second wind after getting through the heat. Um, I think that was about it for the greens there. Oh, uh, some malabar spinach because that's still, believe it or not, it's so hot down here that's still going for me. Took that inside and uh, I cut up the pepper and uh, put that with the olive oil and garlic and got that cooked till it was just starting to get soft. Uh, then I took the um, the uh, all the greens. I also had a piece of leftover steak from the night before. Cut that up real thin because uh, it just needed to be warm through. I didn't want to overcook it. Tossed all the greens and the tomatillo cut up in. As soon as they were soft, I threw the, uh, the beef on top of it, drizzled a little bit of, call it soy sauce. It's a special soy sauce thing I make. I'll save it for another show. It's my special recipe for putting on chicken. But you could just use soy sauce for this. Turned it over a few times, sprinkled it with some sesame seeds onto a plate, done. The whole thing... Took me about as long as it took to explain to you. Because I wasn't really thinking about what it but without the hot walk first and without knowing as soon as those greens are wilted, they're done. This doesn't work. And it's going to come into one of the recipes I'm going to give you in a bit as well. Uh the last one is making bone stock. Uh what's bone stock? Bone stock is when you go out and you butcher a deer, or maybe you butcher like a a a handful of rabbits, you go out and have a good day rabbit hunting or something. Or any time you have a lot of bones laying around and you take a roasting pan and you put that ro- you put all your bones in your roasting pan and you put a few cups of water in there so it won't burn maybe you add a couple shallots or onions or some other vegetables like that if you want to you cover that and you bake it in the oven at about 300 degrees for hours as long as you feel like and all of the excess meat and fat and anything that's on you could do this with, um, if you had a big old couple beef bones or something, you could do the same thing. Drips down, maybe you add a little bit of red wine to it, stretch it with some water, add a little bit of salt. You do this over time. But the stock you get when you roast bones that way and you roast it, some of the, some of the marrow actually has some of the, the fat and the marrow seep out into it. That stock is probably the richest most flavorful stock you could ever create. You can play with that and do what you want. But those are five techniques that I use a lot in my cooking. Let's go into some of my favorite recipes. I'm going to go quick on the first one because I've talked about it so many times before. But it's basic beer bread. Um, beer bread is one of the few things I actually use a real recipe for. Actually, where I actually measure my ingredients and things like that. Because with baking you, you, you kind of have to. But here's the basic ingredients. Three cups of flour One tablespoon of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, one tablespoon of baking powder. And you want to make sure you're using baking powder, not baking soda. And um, that's really it. And 12 ounces of beer. And the big thing with your flour to get the most rise out of your bread is sift your flour. And I like to sift my flour through the sifter two times. And, uh, that'll get you a lot more rice because you're using the, see, people think when you make beer bread, there's yeast in the beer and the yeast creates, no, it's, it has nothing to do with yeast. When you go down to your local store, 99% of all beers you buy, with the exception of a few things that are like Trappist ales out of Belgium, uh, maybe some of the creeks and lambics out of Belgium and stuff like that. Almost every beer you buy, there's no yeast in there. If there is any yeast in there, it's dead because they pasteurize it or with, you know, Miller actually cold filters their beer, but there's nothing alive left in the beer. Because of U.S. Food and Drug Administration law. Use homebrew, there's some live yeast in there. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason there shouldn't be any live yeast in there. I like be- the beer that has a little bit of a yeasty taste like that, I actually like better. But it's not what happens. All it is is all you know, you pour beer and all those bubbles in there? Well, they react with the baking powder and they create rise. The lighter the flour, the more rise. For this reason, don't try to make beer bread with three cups of whole wheat flour. You'll get a very low rise, you'll get kind of a very heavy, dense bread. If you do one and a half white, one and a half wheat, and do a good sifting job, you'll get a pretty good result. And, but what comes out best, even though I prefer more wheat, uh, whole wheat, is about two to one. So two cups of white, one cup of wheat. And then you can play, there's so many things you can do with that. Melt a, a you know uh, an eighth of a cup of butter and then pour it on the top right before you bake it and it'll form a glaze. A uh, handful of chopped walnuts and cranberries in there. Awesome. I did that a few times. Really, really. Anything you can think of. You can use herbs. You can use cheese. A cup of sharp, the white sharp cheddar cheese done with a full white loaf. Just use white uh, pow, uh, flour only with the white cheddar cheese and because the white, Uh, Flour is less flavor It lets the cheese come through more Oh my god is that amazing Beer bread, learn to make it Great thing for the family to do together Uh, I'm going to give you another bread today though. Another traditional no need bread You don't have to wait for it to rise or punch it down Or anything like that And it's called Irish Soda Bread Now if you go to Google You'll find like a billion recipes for soda bread And a lot of them will have things like caraway seeds And uh, eggs and butter And all kinds of stuff in them that's not traditional soda bread. Traditional soda bread is made up of four ingredients. Flour, baking soda, salt, buttermilk. That's it. Now, you can go on, just like the beer bread, you can do all kinds of things off of that. The traditional soda bread was actually probably made from whole wheat flour. But well, here's a basic recipe for it. About four cups of flour, uh, a teaspoon of baking soda, a teaspoon of salt, and about 14 ounces of buttermilk. You mix You don't need the beer bread or this. You just mix it till it's wet. Put that into a pan, cook that uh, at about 425 degrees for about 30 minutes. Beer bread, I cook my beer bread at 375 for about 50 minutes to an hour. You have to keep an eye on it. These numbers and temperatures are uh, based on you know trial and error and what works best in your oven and your elevation and things like that, but... Generally, I found that, um, you cook a little bit lower of a temperature and bake a little bit longer. I get more rise out of breads, especially that don't use yeast, that are no knead breads, like soda bread and like beer bread. You can look these recipes up. There's a billion of them out there, but I've just given you the basic ones. And from this point on, as I go through this, I'm going to tell you, um, I can't give you hard, uh, recipes. If you start saying, put in the comments, oh, post your recipe for bruschetta, post your recipe for this, post your, I'm giving you the recipes the way I cook them from this point forward. I don't measure anything when I cook. I'm not that kind of cook. Because I've also realized that in most things it doesn't really matter that much. It's all about taste and looking at it and just kind of going, yeah, that's about right. So let's go to my next one. Um, and this is something you can do with bread. You can do, use you can use your soda bread or your beer bread for this. But traditionally, you would use like an Italian bread or an Italian baguette uh, type bread for the bread part of this. But it's bruschetta. And there's a million ways to make bruschetta. None of them are wrong. None of them are necessarily right. I'm going to give you the way I do it. We get a whole bunch of Roma tomatoes, whether they come from the yard or whether we buy them. We dice them up. We hand cut them. We do not use a food processor. We dice them up into small dices. We'll use about one or two uh red peppers, big red bell peppers, based on how many tomatoes they are. We probably use about if we use about let's say eight to ten tomatoes for a small batch, which is sounds a lot, but it's really not that much when you start eating it and sharing it and things like that uh we'll use one pepper, so one pepper to every eight or ten tomatoes. We'll use about six cloves because I'm saying I don't have a fixed recipe and I really don't but to give you a feel for the numbers here I use about six cloves of garlic for eight to ten tomatoes six whole cloves of garlic um, and that's that's diced up as well. All of those three ingredients are mixed together. I get a great big handful of fresh basil leaves. I don't know how much. I chop that up real fine I mix that in there. Then I drizzle olive oil over it all till it's all coated, not swimming, but coated in olive oil. It should still look relatively dry. I use, you know, a few a few squirts of balsamic vinegar to increase the acidity, uh, give it a little bit of flavor, and increase how long it'll last in the refrigerator without canning, because I don't like the canned bruschetta. Because then you cook it, it's not the same. All right. And then I use sea salt, uh, you know, sea salt across it to taste. Mix that up in a bowl. Put that in the refrigerator. It's got to sit. This is the key. That has to sit for at least four hours minimum. If it doesn't sit that long, it won't become what it's supposed to become. During that four-hour period, at least two or three times you want to take it out and mix it. And As you mix it, you'll start to see more and more liquid forming in it. That's a combination of the tomatoes just simply releasing some of their liquids, the salt pulling some of the liquid out, uh, the olive oil kind of trickling down, the vinegar tr- trickling down, and the reason you want to mix it is so that all of it continues to stay moist. It will almost, almost be have a little bit of liquid throughout it by the time it's done, but not quite. The top will always be a little bit dry. That's your basic bruschetta. You can do whatever you want to with that. That is as simple as that is. That is the most phenomenal thing you could make for somebody with simplicity. And you can do, you can cook with it. It can go, you can take pasta and throw the bruschetta on top of the hot pasta and let it just warm through. There's so many things you can do with it. I'll give you something here in just a second. The traditional way to serve it though is with toasted bread. Take your bread, cut it about a half inch thick. This is cooked bread by the way. Uh, spray it or brush it with some olive oil. Sprinkle a little bit of garlic salt on top of your bread. And maybe sprinkle some rosemary and or basil on top of your bread. You can leave those two out, but they're nice. Set your oven on broil. Put it in there until the top of the bread is toasted brown. Pull it out. Serve the bruschetta on top of the uh, the bread. Sprinkle a little bit of parmesan on that. The simplest thing you could make. It takes a little bit of time to hand cut it, but it comes out so much better hand cut. Same way I make salsa, by the way, always hand cut. You serve that to people to come to your house, and they're blown away. They can't believe it's just tomatoes, basil, olive oil, some red, and you can leave the red peppers out. They are not a necessary ingredient at all um and salt. That's it. That's all there is to it. But god that is good and it's you know one of the biggest crops that we have as home gardeners are tomatoes and we'd like to use roma's for this but you can use any tomato. You just don't want to use a tomato that is really heavy with seed pulp. You want something that has a lot of uh, a high ratio of uh of solid to uh to pulp. So you want any kind of a tomato that's that's kind of good in that respect. Next one, pasta with arugula all right, we all store pasta, and we, if we have a garden, even if it's arugula is something you should grow in the cool part of the year, let it go to seed in the summer and plant it again. And you should have arugula wherever you are as often as you can, because you can grow it in a small pot in a windowsill. And it's a nutty, kind of spicy green. Use the technique that I gave you for, for braising greens. Take your, take your arugula... First, do your pasta, have your pasta set aside, leave it still warm. Immediately heat up your, uh, a pan, uh, you can use a wok for this or a big uh, a big serving pan, what have you. A little bit of olive oil, get it nice and hot, a little bit of garlic, um, throw your arugula in there. As soon as, it, as soon as it wilts down, throw your pasta on top of it, pull it off the heat, mix it through, maybe give it a little bit more heat if the pasta is cooled enough where it needs some heat. Add a little bit of butter and salt to the pasta, done, that's it. Serve that on the side with chicken or serve it as a main meal uh, if you're going to do a, a, a night without meat. Awesome. Simple, fast, quick. Don't add anything more than what I said. Maybe a little bit of basil. You know, you can add some salt and pepper, but that's it. Don't get creative with that one. Let it be what it is. That's a very traditional Italian uh, thing is arugula with, with pasta. You could do this with. Um, you could do it with kale. Uh, which is also kind of traditional because they do a lot of the Nero de Toscana kale, or the black kale, dinosaur kale. Uh, the, it's all the same plant, uh, very traditional in Italian winter gardens. That works well with this recipe. You could do it with spinach, but nothing quite like that nutty bite of arugula. And the best pasta that i found to do this with is linguine. You add a little bit of butter, a little bit of olive oil, and the garlic and the arugula. It just kind of all sticks, and it makes a nice, light sauce, and, and that flat noodle holds it a little bit more. Here's another one, switching gears all together. Uh, Mexican-Italian, right? This is something my wife came up with, and we tried this. This is great. And I have in the show notes next to it, do as thou wilt with this. And it's tortilla pizza. And I, I don't know if any, probably a million people do this. But you take a simple tortilla, whether it's something you've made yourself from scratch or just the cheap ones like Mission you buy in the store, and um, on top of that you put a little thin layer of tomato sauce. And, like, here's the one we did recently. We We had some leftover smoked chicken. We cubed it up. We put the cubed chicken on there, and uh, we took some fresh basil, chopped that up, put fresh basil on it, and uh, we sprinkled it with uh, the uh, with with you know like mozzarella cheese, like an Italian cheese blend that you get pre graded real, real real simple, and then we had some uh, bruschetta around, so we added a little bit of bruschetta to the top instead of the you know, the, the kind of hokey sun-dried tomato thing, and we just baked those for about ten minutes at 350. We have one of those stone baking sheets. Stone baking sheets go in the oven and get hot before you put the food on them. So we baked them like that. They were awesome. And I say do as thou wilt because you can do anything with that. You could throw pepperoni on there. You could make a uh, something that's, that's far more like a Mexican tostada type thing. You could go uh, kind of uber, uber, uh, what's the word, yuppie with it and do something kind of. But it's just a cool way to cook. And it's easy and it's fast. Kids will like it. But it's also a hell of a lot better for you than. Traditional pizza dough that's maybe you know an inch thick and it's all coated, which you you cook a lot more lightly with it. You can use up a lot of leftover ingredients. So check out Tortilla Pizza. My next one, let's move to something that that involves using wild game. Bacon jalapeno dove. This is not my recipe. This is made by people all over Texas in dove season, in the dove field, all the time on little grills. Guys will go out on a dove lease. There might be 30 guys hunting on a dove lease. They'll camp out, spend a two-day hunt. Uh, and they'll come back from the morning hunt, and they'll clean all the doves together, and then this is what they'll do. Um, and my ver- my one variation is I don't use any onion. You take your dove breast, and if you want to know how to clean a dove and get just, just the breast out of it, i got a YouTube video for that. I'll put a link today. Pull You take your pulled dove breast, you take a knife, and you look at your breast straight down at it where you have the bone in the middle, and you cut a little slice along the bone on both sides. Traditionally in Texas, they put a jalapeno in one side, and an onion in the other. I put an onion in both sides. You can do either one. You then take a strip of bacon, you wrap it around that dove breast, you put a toothpick through it. Then you take a mixture of soy sauce and Worcestershire sauce, and you either put it, usually in the field, you don't do it the way I do it at home, because you have less stuff with you, so you put it basically like a a little, uh, a lot of times they just don't even put it in anything, you just sprinkle it right out of the, uh, the jar, or out of the bottle that it comes in, but you basically baste your doves, Cooked over mesquite coals is a traditional way to do it, um, with soy and Worcestershire. Wrapped in bacon, and as soon as they're done, as soon as the meat will come loose from the bone, they're done, you take them off. Bacon crisps up a little bit. These are, to me, this is the most phenomenal thing in the world. I could eat that every day and never grow tired of it. They're absolutely amazing. I have a video of 30 minutes, a 30-minute video on exactly how to do this, in the member support brigade that you can download and watch on your computer. Uh, But that really is it. It's that easy. I don't do anything else with it. I don't do anything more complicated with it. That's it. That's all. Um, I do cook it a lot on a gas grill at home. If we bring a lot of doves back and we have them in the freezer and what have you. But if I have the time, I will always make a fire and we'll do them with either charcoal or mesquite. I've never done it with hickory. They should be good. But being a Texas traditional thing and being done out in you know the fields, and with all the mesquite around here, you can see how that came to be traditional. The next one is my basic stew for rabbit, squirrel, or venison, uh, or anything. You can do this with beef even. But making stew is something that never has to be as complicated as a lot of people make it. You basically take your meat, and if I'm doing rabbit or squirrel, and let's stick with that, because anything else you can just do easier. Rabbit and squirrels a real pain in the butt to take all the meat off the bones. It's also not really something you want to serve the stew with, you know, people having to pick up and eat it like a piece of chicken. You'd like to serve it with the meat off the bones. So what you do is you start out with with your base, and you get some good hot oil in the bottom of, of whatever you're going to cook your stew in, just, to, just enough to coat the bottom, some uh, garlic and onion, and uh, salt and pepper, your your venison or your, your you know whatever you're putting in there your squirrel your rabbit if you do squirrel and rabbit cut it into quarters right throw the whole quarters in there brown the outsides of it right add enough water to just barely cover your meat now if you're doing this with beef you're gonna want to maybe um, what they call skim the scum because a lot of there's a lot of fat in your beef. And uh, you, you get a, too much fat in your stew, and when you eat it, it sticks to your lips and all. It's just not good. So if you're cooking with a fatty piece of meat, you're going to want to skim. There's like a foam that comes up. With, uh, with rabbit, with venison, with anything lean like that, you're just not even going to have to worry about it. So start simmering it uh, with, with your water. Um, simmer it until the meat will literally easily come off the bones. Take all of it out, okay, Leave, the, leave them the liquid you've created, because that's your stock now in there. But take all of your quarters out. Let it cool a little bit so you don't burn your hands. And then just debone the meat that way. Put, ev- put the meat and any of the larger pieces of bones, like any like the ribs and stuff, throw away. But like the, the legs and stuff like that, throw that all back in there, because it's going to keep cooking. And it's going to keep adding to the kind of the stock that you're, you're making. Add a little bit more water. Bring that to a simmer. Now add your vegetables. My traditional vegetables I like, potatoes, carrots, celery. Big chunks, put that in there, but I want the meat pretty much done by the time I add that. Add as much water as you need to cover the top. This is where I either take some of that great bone stock and use that as part of building up my liquid, or if I don't have any bone stock that we talked about originally, or any stock that I've made for myself, I go to, you know, a commercial stock. And what I like to use for both beef and chicken cooking. Uh, is a product from Orrington Farms. O R R I N G T O N Farms, and uh, use some beef flavored stock from that, or use bone stock, or use standard beef stock, or something. You want to add some stock. That if you just use water, you're generally not going to get enough flavor, right? So how much to taste, right? Um, add your vegetables, cook them till they're soft. Now pull out your bones. Uh, one thing I left out right from uh, the beginning when you start adding the water, bay leaf. Bay leaf, salt, and pepper. Those are my traditional seasonings. You can add anything else you want to that that makes sense for you. Once you uh, once you remove the uh, the bones at this point, and you've you've added your uh, uh, you, when you're almost done with it anyway, you go ahead and remove your bones, right? And now you want to thicken it. Generally, stews don't come out thick enough for me. There's two ways to do this: a couple tablespoons of flour or cornstarch into a cup. Add enough water where you can mix it and mix it till it's really, really smooth. Incorporate that, simmer it until it thickens up for you. Or another way that I've been experimenting with recently that's more of a traditional Irish way to thicken a stew, get two or three potatoes that maybe you cook whole or in big pieces to make it easy to identify and get them out of your stew. Uh, take them out and mash them and incorporate mashed potatoes as a way to thicken the stew. Either way, that's the basics. You can look up a ton of stew recipes, but just don't make stew complicated. It doesn't have to be. Um, The next one is grilled roasted potatoes. This is a new one. I've had other potato recipes I still like to make, but this is easier, and it's healthier for you, uh, and it's really, really simple to do. You want to use the big russet potatoes for this. Cut them about three-quarters of an inch thick, maybe a half inch thick at the thinnest, but you want them thick. You could go up to an inch. Um, Cut them in big pieces, so they're big slices. So a really big russet, maybe you would cut it like across, so you have big round pieces. A smaller one, maybe you cut it long ways. I like to do them long ways, where they almost look like big plank fries. Take a, 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 a pot of water, get it up to boiling with some salt. Boil them in salt water for only about three to five minutes. Just to where they start to feel a little bit tender, but they're nowhere near done. Take them off, let them cool. All right? I know that sounds like extra work, but it will you will get a much better end result if you do this. The potato will cook through better, and believe it or not, it'll crisp up better. It'll get rid of some of the starch that causes it to stick when you do what you're going to do next. Get a little bowl in that bowl, put some olive oil, and get a brush. Put cracked pepper... Crumbled rosemary and crumbled basil into the into the olive oil. Mix it up. Okay. Maybe have a little bit of extra um, rosemary on the side that you can use out on the grill. Take your potatoes out on the grill. Put them on the grill. Brush them. Uh, with, with the olive oil, flip them over, brush the other side. On the side that's up, sprinkle a little bit of that dried rosemary and basil on top of them. As they cook, flip them over, give them another little splash of olive oil you want. The downside to have olive oil at all times, it'll help keep it from sticking. The upside, though, is where you add your extra herbs, and just cook it till it's done and browned. Simple, easy, awesome. That is a great side dish for steak. You serve steak with potatoes like that and some kind of vegetable, what more could you ask for? Um, next one today, um, baked summer squash casserole. Real, real simple. Slice up either zucchini or yellow squash or both. Put them into a casserole dish. Cover them with cheddar cheese, all right, and add croutons to the top. Bake it until the cheese is melted and the squash is hot. No longer, right, which is probably 350 for about 20 minutes. That's it. That's the whole thing. There is no more. Awesome. Kids will actually eat squash that way. You don't need to use a lot of cheddar cheese since you're making it yourself. Unlike some crap out of the freezer section, you can use as much as you want. Remember when you're cooking with cheese. When you take the food out, you can always look at it and get a handful of, or a, you know, a couple pinches of shredded cheese while it's still hot and add some more cheese. If you slather it in cheese, it's like slathering it in salt. You can't take it away. So cheese is one of the things that can add X's to our L's and make us bigger people when we don't want to be. So go easy with the cheese. Now the croutons, you can use store-bought croutons or you can make your own. Let me give you a way to make croutons. Real simple. Take some bread, either bread that you've made or bread that you bought from the store or whatever, uh, especially if it's kind of getting older. Cut it up into cubes. Okay? Now, you can just let that dry out, and you got a basic crouton. And whatever that bread's flavored like that, you get. So if it's plain white bread, it's a plain crouton. If it's Italian bread, it's an Italian crouton. If it's wheat, it's wheat, what have you. But if you want to give it a little bit of flavor, spread all your cubes bread out in front of you. Get a simple water bottle that you can mist water with. Mist it very, very lightly. You don't want the bread wet at all. You want it just moist enough that when you do whatever you're going to do next, it'll stick. A little bit of salt little bit of pepper, This you want to use a fine salt for this, but use your hand. Don't use a salt shaker, you lose use way too much. Or garlic salt, basil, rosemary, whatever you want to do to flavor your croutons. Kind of just roll them over with your hands, real gentle, do the other side. Set that out, let them dry out. Or if you want to do it faster, put it in an oven at about 200 degrees until they're crispy. Put those aside, they'll store as long as any crouton, and they'll taste a lot better. Use those as a crouton for a salad. Use that for topping um, your uh, your squash casserole. I just gave you what have you. But squash casserole, it doesn't have to have much else in it other than a squash because when you bake squash, a lot of the, the the liquid of the squash comes out, a little salt and pepper, a little bit of cheese, a little crouton, that's all you really need with that. You can get fancy with it, but why when it's easy to be simple? I love to do roasted winter squash. Uh, pretty much all I do to do roasted winter squash is uh, seed it, peel it, Cube it, put it into a baking dish, sprinkle it with a little bit of uh, just a very, you can go too much rosemary and squash, easy. A little bit of rosemary, a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of salt, and roast that. And then just eat it. I mean that's that people look at these big you know winter squashes and go what the hell do I do with it? it's a good that your Kershaw squashes aren't quite as sweet they're going to be more of something you want to do like a, a pie with or a cookie or a bread or something like that but a lot of your winter squashes your acorns your buttercups um, your butternuts uh, the long neck, traditional Pennsylvania long neck pumpkins. Uh, There's a really good, almost like they, they taste more like sweet potatoes than anything else I can think of, other than you know what squash tastes like. You can also do a lot of soups and things with them. But just roast some squash once in a while. Just roast it, cubed up, and put it on a plate next to some other things, and, and experiment with what you like as far as how much salt and pepper and things like that. Uh, I've also done grilled squash, grilled winter squash, smaller winter squashes, cut them in half, and uh, even leave the rind on them. Paint them with a little olive oil so they won't stick, a little salt and pepper, throw them face-side down on the grill, cook them till the flesh is tender, they come right out of the rind at that point. I mean, there's, there's so many things you can do with winter squash besides pureeing it into a soup or stuffing it into a ravioli. Not that those things aren't good, but don't think that the, the uh, our forefathers and the Native Americans that were living on these things a lot were sitting around making uh, pureed soups and raviolis in the 1600s. Right, they were roasting this stuff and eating it. Um, another one is I, I made this for my wife yesterday because with her mouth pain from this tooth thing that I gotta take her for tomorrow, she wasn't really into eating anything and she was starting to feel shaky and all. And I, even if you're not sick traditionally, you always feel better with chicken soup, right? And uh, it's nourishing, and it's rich, it feels good, and you know. So I decided I'm gonna be a good husband and I made her some chicken soup. But I didn't have time to get, like, a whole chicken or a used piece of chicken. You know, like, when you bake a chicken and you take the bones and all and make traditional chicken soup stock and cook it all day long, I wanted something that would be done, that would be homemade, but done in an hour. So I uh, got some chicken thighs cubed up the raw chicken, um, threw it into a pan or to a pot full of water that was already boiling. Get the water boiling first when you do this stuff. Uh, since it's, it was, it was store-bought chicken, full of fat, big layer of foam on the top, skim the foam off to get rid of it. And whenever you do a soup or a stew and you put meat in and you start boiling it, you see that layer of foam come up, skim that crap off of there. So got that down, back to my Orrington Farms, went with the chicken-flavored stock, added some of that, uh, cooked the chicken until it was done, all right? So it was done enough. It wasn't quite as tender as you want it, but it was done enough, probably 20, 25 minutes. Uh, while the chicken's simmering, chopped up. Uh, actually, I didn't even chop. Yeah, this is a, I went to the store to do this stuff so it could be done quick. I bought some celery and carrots. The carrots I bought were the carrots that come like shredded, like 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 they're just like long, skinny carrots. I just threw the carrots in, chopped up celery, threw that in, cook it for about another half hour like that, um, salt and pepper to taste. And then right at the end, if you're going to do a chicken noodle soup, Noodles will like explode if you're not careful. So, right at the end, you can buy celery that's pre cut into thin to small pieces. Um, so I got a box of pre cut celery at the store. I dumped it about half of the box, cooked it till it was soft. That was it. It was done. She ate three bowls. My son, I think, ate like four or five. You know, and we it made a big pot because I got a, a big thing of chicken thighs to do this with. And I did get the ones that were already skinned because I knew I was going to make soup out of them. Um, they also were boneless. If I was doing this, like, if I wanted to get a whole chicken, I wanted to just use thighs or breasts, I would want to buy chicken with skin and bone, and I'd want to cook that a long time, remove it, take the meat off, put it back in the way I described with the squirrel or rabbit. But to make it quick, just use a good, solid chicken stock uh, to bring the flavor up, and again, Oriented Farms, it kind of looks like bullion but it's a little bit moist. It's my favorite to cook with. For, they have a ham base, they have a beef base, they have a chicken base. I love this stuff. It stores damn near forever. It doesn't need refrigeration, so it's great as part of your preps. Um, the next one is a basic bean and sausage soup. This is really easy, and this can be done with a bunch of different kinds of beans. It can be done, but this is for dry beans. This is to make use of all those dry beans that you have sitting around. Um, You take about a pound of dry beans and um, soak them in water overnight and uh, get them ready to cook the next day. Or do the quick soak thing, which is, you get boiling water, you add your beans to it, you bring it back up to a boil, you pull it off the heat, you cover them for an hour and you drain the water off and then you can cook with them. That's your quick way to do beans. I generally soak them overnight. And um, then take um onion and garlic is what I like to use for this and a little bit of bacon. Uh maybe probably 3 or 4 pieces of bacon and add that to a big to a big uh, stock pan. A big so you're going to cook your whole soup in. And uh, cook down your onions and garlic. This would be a great place to do either a Holy Trinity or a mirepoix as well. I just usually use onions and garlic for this, though, for one reason or another. And um, then, once that's kind of uh, sautéed down, add water, bring it to a boil, uh, add your beans. Simmer your beans. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot something. Add your sausage to when you're doing the browning on the bottom of the pan. Then add your water and uh, your beans. And just simmer that till the beans are done. And, uh, to it, uh, what you're gonna wanna do is add, uh, about one big can of crushed tomatoes. And it can be that simple. And then you can go from there. You can add some, you know, you can add, get, get some of the Oriented Farms pork base. And add a little bit of the ham, the ham pork base. And add some of that. Uh, that'll bring it up for you variations on it. You take an old piece of, you know, you buy a ham for Thanksgiving or Christmas and everybody's like eating most of it. And there's like a, that piece at the end and the big bone, you know, boil that to make your stock and then add your beans to that. But just understand that beans don't have to just be sitting there on a plate as beans. And when you add something like sausage or ham to them and you put that together, you get kind of a whole new experience. Um, then one of my favorite things to make and, um, Man, I, I really, really like making this. And I, I got the idea from a soup called Supa de Toscana that they make at Olive Garden. And it's just a traditional sausage, kale, and potato soup. It's kind of a traditional Italian thing. And there's all kinds of recipes trying to clone it. And I just basically started throwing what seemed like was in it together for myself. The sausage they use is kind of spicy. So I get like a spicy Italian sausage I either get it ground, like where it comes like hamburger meat, or if I can't find it that way, I'll get it in casings. And if it comes in casings, i remove it from the casings. I fry it first, and I want to get all that grease off of it, especially the spicy Italian. There's kind of a red grease that comes off of that. I don't want that in my soup. So I'll fry that in a pan, and once that's fried, I'll add to that same pan um, uh, some bacon and some onions, and I'll cook the onions until they're clear. And then I'll add a little bit of white wine, and that will deglaze the pan. That's another thing with pan sauce that, that Keith Snow talked about. So what I want to do is some of the stuff is going to, the sausage brownings and the onions and stuff like that's going to stick to the bottom of that pan, and I want that stuff to come up. So I'm going to add some white wine, maybe a little bit of water, depending on how much white wine I'm using. could do this with beer, but white wine is you know kind of the traditional thing I guess to do here until I get all of that stuff to come up off the bottom of the pan. Then I'm gonna add, uh, about four cups of water, roughly five cups of water, as much water as I think I need. And I'm gonna add to that, like, three or four, uh, potatoes, uh, chopped up. And I'm gonna add my Oriented Farms chicken stock. So, I, I can't, again, I can't really tell you, I, use, you know, I, I'll add, you know, maybe two tablespoons of it and taste it and go, is there enough flavor there? If there isn't, I add a little bit more. Remember, you can always add more later. So if you think it's not enough, but you're not sure, let it go. And uh, again, diced up potatoes. And I'll cook that till the potatoes are soft. At Toward the end, I'm going to want to add about a half a cup of whipped cream. This is going to make it kind of a creamy white soup. And I'm going to add... Uh, chopped up kale. As much as I think I want in the soup that day. That's how much I use. I want to cook the kale till it's soft, but I don't want it to be slimy like, like frozen spinach. I want to still have, I want you to be able to look at it and know what it is. So I'm going to add that at the very end. And I'm going to serve that in a bowl with a nice piece of bread. Absolutely outstanding. Very, very simple. Uh, not difficult to do at all. If I want it to be thicker, I'm just going to cook it longer. And I'm like, you go, once you add that milk or cream, you can use milk to save calories. If you want to do a low-cal version, you can use whole milk or you can use 2% milk. Skim, I don't think, is going to cut it with this. You're going to need a little bit of cream in there to get this creamy texture out of it and cook it down a little bit before you add your kale. You could also thicken it by taking some extra potatoes and mashing them up and, and stirring them into it would be another way to thicken it or using some flour or meal or something like that. Cornstarch would also thicken it, but I don't think that's necessary. I think this is a soup that's better when it's not too thick, when it's not stew-like, when it's really soup-like. But very, very simple. Good way to use those potatoes from the backyard. you got a good farmer's market with them, And you, this doesn't have to be Italian, right? You could, get, you could do this with chicken apple sausage. <laughs> you could do this with smoked sausage. I've seen it done that way. You can do this with any kind of a sausage, sausage and potatoes, but it's the creaminess and the kale. Is really awesome against it. You could use some other you know, you could use spinach in this or something like that, but the kale's gonna hold its body. The kale's gonna stand up to the heat of the soup better, and it's gonna be more substance within the soup. So that's another one you might want to give a try to. Um, after that, what else do I got for you today? Grilled deer heart. <sighs> oh man. Um the first thing that I generally eat out of any deer that I kill is the tenderloins. Not the backstrap, but the tenderloins, the ones on the inside, the filet mignon, and the heart. This is what I do with the heart. Take the deer heart out. When you get a deer heart, or you can do this with beef heart. You can do this with any kind of heart that you want to eat. Uh, but traditionally, I've done this with deer heart. You're going to see a lot of like fat on the outside. You need to trim all that off. You're going to cut it open. There's going to be all kinds of little ventricles and things and stuff in there, stringy looking things, clean it all up so it's just me. And if you have any squeamishness about eating a heart, I want you to think about like a heart's not like kidney or liver. It's not a organ in that capacity. A heart is muscle. It's the same type of thing you're eating when you eat a steak. All right, so it doesn't have any of that mushy, liver-like quality that certain organ meats do, uh, which is part of why I like it a hell of a lot more. I'm not a liver fan at all. Not a, I'll try anything once, but those things have never worked for me. Heart's a different story. Cut it into the biggest pieces you can and get it cleaned out. Get garlic powder, not salt, paprika, and a little bit of salt and, and, and black pepper, and and you know sprinkle that on 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 the heart. It'll all stick. Get you a know, nice wet heart. Just go outside, fire your grill up, and we get the grill nice and hot. And the paprika, and the garlic powder will form almost like a like a like a uh, like a crust, and sear that on the outside. It'll brown it and cook it. The big thing with heart and any any game, don't overcook it. If you cook it too long, it gets Tough, and it starts to get almost that liver-like thing you're trying to avoid. You want it cooked through, pretty much. But as soon as it looks done, it's probably done. Take it off. Give that a shot. And you can do this. You can do that same recipe with something like boneless beef short ribs. Exact same recipe, and you get a totally different experience because one's heart meat from a deer and the other's beef rib meat from a from a from a steer. But they're both very, very good. That mix of paprika, garlic, garlic powder, salt, and pepper is a great thing to do any kind of meat that you're going to cook at high temperature quickly with, especially any kind of a red meat. You're going to get a very almost a blackening, but not quite a blackening from the paprika mixing with the garlic powder. Um, next one: bacon wrapped deer backstrap. Backstrap is the part that goes all the way from the neck. Damn to the to the rump roast that big long beautiful cut that when you hang a deer up and you're 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 uh, you're, you're you know boning out the meat you can get just one long strap it's the piece that Ted Nugent talks about what I found with most people with their back straps is they cut it too thin when you once you get that strap out and you lay it down on your cutting board cut the individual pieces about an inch to an inch and a quarter thick all right that's that's, uh, that's going to give you the ability to cook high temperature and leave it just a little bit pink in the middle. People go crazy with deer meat. People that will sit down and eat a blood red piece of beef that came from a slaughterhouse will have a heart attack at eating a piece of venison with even a mild bit of pink in it. I eat pink venison all the time. And I'm not going to cook it all the way through unless it's something like a stew or something like that because it ruins it. It dries it out. It gets mushy. It tastes almost like liver again. Right? You want it a little bit pink. And there's nothing wrong with, I mean, the deer that you take from the woods, and people have chronic wasting disease and all this other crap. That stuff's in the the bones. It's in the, the spinal system. It's in the 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 the, the, uh, the nerves in the, in the brain and all. If you bone your meat and you don't cut into the bone, it's just not an issue. Right? And I mean, if you're going to really worry about it, fine. I'm not. If you want good deer, this is the way to do it. One inch thick back straps. Take salt and pepper and uh, just coat both sides of it with salt and pepper. Wrap a piece of bacon around the outside, almost like you see them do with filet mignon, and put uh, toothpicks in there to hold that on. Make a mixture in a little bowl or a cup or something like that. This mixture is about... 10% 10% Worcestershire to about 90% or I'm sorry about 10% Worcestershire, about 40% soy sauce and about 40% beer. Mix that together. Put your get your grill screaming hot. Don't put the mixture on the uh, the, the 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 venison yet. Sear one side. As soon as it's seared, flip it over and sear the other side. As soon as you flip it over, Brush the mixture on the seared side. As soon as the other side seared, flip it over and brush the mixture on it. You want it seared and brushed early. Cook it till about medium well. Which you have to kind of like look at the meat and learn this. You don't want blood still coming out of the meat itself. If you've got blood coming out of the meat, but you want to feel it. And when it feels firm but not dried out. Uh, the, the, the traditional trick is you take your hand. You look at your left hand and you touch your your pointer finger to your thumb and the little padding in front of and this is beef really and venison you got to go a little bit one stage back from but you put them together and the padding beneath your thumb that big padded part of your hand you feel that that's rare now open your fingers again take your your, your finger you'd give somebody the bird with and touch the tip of that to the tip of your thumb and feel that right and that's that's medium and then take your ring finger and touch the tip of your thumb and push that pad. And the way that feels, that's medium well. And then take your pinky to your thumb, and that's well done. And that should never happen with a piece of red meat ever because it's ruined. That's my opinion anyway, okay? So you want to cook it till about that second finger, right, and put it to the side because it'll keep cooking, any kind of red meat especially. You get it good and hot off the grill, you set it to the side and let it rest. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, it will continue to cook some for you. But that is just the best way I know to make deer backstrap. A lot of folks traditionally take it, cut it thin, roll it in flour, and they deep fry it, and it's good. But you fry things so that something that's not quite that great will taste better, right? Because you're eating the batter, you're eating the fat, you're eating the salt, and we shouldn't eat like that often. But if we're going to, that's why we're doing it. So I mean, because you gotta admit. If you take a really nice marinated fried piece of chicken and a really nice grilled piece of chicken, that fried piece of chicken tastes better. It just does. But venison backstrap is such a succulent, rich piece of meat with so much going for it. It's not something that we want to you know to uh, to cover up. So that's a lot of recipes. I want to finish up today with a few, I guess you would call them, tricks of the trade. Um, Number one, I've talked about this a little bit going through. Get your pots, pans, grills, whatever you're going to put your food on, hot first. If you take a cold piece of meat, put it in a cold frying pan and start heating it up, you're going to boil it, not fry it, and it's going to come out like crap. Get it hot. Now, you can overdo this. You can get it so hot when you stick that meat in there, it just burns. Uh, you can get it so hot that it, you know it's too hot. But get it good and hot first. If you got oil in there and, and some like shallots or garlic or something, they should be turning brown before that piece of meat goes in there. Number two, allow your food to come to room temperature before you put it on the grill or in the pan or whatever. This is specifically with meat. Here's what happens. You get that pan nice and hot. It's all ready to go. You've got your seasonings in there. you got your butter, your garlic, your herbs, whatever it is. You take that cold piece of meat and you put it in that pan. And it's so cold, and and most household ovens and stoves and and even our most of our backyard grills don't have that much BTU power. So as soon as you put that meat in there, that space that the meat hits drops in temperature. And if it's cold meat, it drops way, way down. And has to slowly come back up. And it counterbalances the fact that you heated it up in the first place. The other thing that often happens, and this is why people don't get their pans hot first, is because the meat's so cold and it's like such a down temperature on a hot surface, what happens to the meat sticks? And they think, I can't get my pan out because my meat sticks. But it's because you're putting ice-cold meat into a hot pan. Take your meat out an hour before you're going to cook, two hours before you keep it covered, but let it out. Let it warm. Let it come to room temperature. It's not going to go bad in an hour or two. And you're going to get much better results. Um, next one. I talked about this with the venison. Rest beef, in fact, most meats, including poultry, uh, anything other than probably than fish, when you take that off a grill or out of a pan or out of an oven, let it sit for 10 to 15 minutes. I used to screw this one up. I used to obsess. i bring steak and Come on, everybody eat before it gets cold. Like it's going to freeze in 15 seconds or something. When you got meat hot, really hot, all the fat, all the juice, everything that's left in there is in a very liquid state. If you cut it at that point, what happens is it all runs out. And this is a lot of you guys that are trying to get, you know, you know that rare meat is better tasting than, than well-done meat, and you've got that woman in your life that doesn't want to eat the red blood meat. If you let it sit, it'll get a little bit more done, and when you cut it, even though it's pink or, or even a little bit red, even though it's like a, a rare, you should be able to do rare steak, and when you cut it, blood shouldn't run out on the plate. You know, because that's what what does it for people that want well done, because they see that, and that's like, oh, no, I'm not eating that. If you let the meat rest, that won't happen. Think about it this way. No matter how rare you've cooked a piece of steak, if you couldn't eat it all, you put it in the refrigerator, you took it out the next day and you cut it, did you see a drop of blood come out? And the answer is, of course, no. Let your meat rest. Next one. Um, Red meat should never be well done. It really shouldn't. I mean, I'm sorry if you like your meat well done. The reality is if I blindfold you and I serve you a steak cooked medium and I serve you a steak cooked well done and you don't have the psychological issue with it's it's pink. There's blood in it, whatever. You will pick the medium steak every single time because it's juicier. It's actually going to be more tender. When you when you cook a steak to well done, you cook everything that makes it a steak out of it. You cook all the flavor out of it. Red meat should never be well done, period. Um, if you want to do it that way, again, this is opinion here, not fact, but I'm telling you, it's not going to be the same. Next one, if you can dry age your meat, dry age it. Don't, you're going to cook a steak tonight, right? Even if this is a, a one-day thing, right? You bring it home. It's in that. You know, it's wrapped up in paper, and it's got a little blotter thing in the body. It sits in there, and it, it blood leaks out of it, and it sits in its own blood. And the top of it's dry, and the bottom of it's bloody. And oh, that is not the way to get your steak ready to cook. Take your steaks, put them into like, um, get them off of that crap, out of that plastic, out of that sulfate, Set them on on a paper towel or something, and 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 kind of drain the excess blood out. Set them on a plate. And let them open to the air in the refrigerator, for at least for the day that you're going to cook them. And a lot of that bloody thing will not go on. And if you look in there in an hour, and that plate's bloody, pick your steak up. Dump the blood off it. Wipe the plate clean. Blot the steak with a paper towel. Put it back in there. Let it dry age a little bit. Good steakhouses dry age their meat for 30 to 60 days. Cool temperatures, dry, and that's why you go to that place and you can order that steak blood red rare and no blood's coming out of that meat because it's aged. When we used to do our deer in Pennsylvania, especially our deer in ripe, archery season was a little tougher. What we'd do is we'd quarter them. We had this old refrigerator, and I mean old, like rounded off, looking like, like a 57 Chevy-styled refrigerator um, out in the, in the shanty, as we called it. And we would quarter our deer that time of the year and just stick it in there, and we'd let the meat age until it actually started to get, I know this sounds gross, but there's nothing gross about it. The edges of the meat would actually start to blacken a little bit. And then we would go ahead and bone it out and, and, and cut our individual cuts and put it away, and your meat would get much more tender that way. That's what aging does. It allows lactic acid to start to break down the muscle fibers. And that's why, you know, it sounds like something you don't want to do, but every good steakhouse, there is not a steakhouse on the planet that doesn't that's worth a damn, that anybody wants to go to that doesn't dry-age their beef. And you do the same thing with venison. Um, so dry aged meat, if you can, at least... Let that go on for the day that you're going to cook it, and then take that out and let that meat sit out and warm up before you put it on the grill. Next one, when you're cooking something like a stew or a soup or whatever, uh, where you're going to have to chop up a lot of stuff, and you're going to try to put things in at a certain time, you want to put in, let's say, uh, your potatoes right at the end of a stew so that they're not overcooked and mushed out, uh, maybe even a little bit after your carrots and celery. so much easier if you get everything ready to go and start cooking. And when you need to add something, you pick the bowl up and you dump it in. You wash the bowl out. You put it away. Prepare your ingredients in advance, especially whenever you're going to do measurements and things like that. It'll make your life easier. You'll use less stuff. Otherwise, you'll find like at the end you'll make one simple thing and the whole sink's full of dishes. Prepare your uh, ingredients in advance. Um, if you have items that add a lot of flavor or that cook fast, well, I just said add them at the end. Um, garlic. It's okay to cook with garlic. I like to use a lot of garlic when I'm uh, sautéing beef for a stew or whatever. But what I like to do is get a couple cloves of garlic, chop it up fresh, and add it to things right at the end. Um, First of all, garlic loses so much of its ability to heal and improve our health when it's cooked. Closer to the raw state, garlic is the greater effect it has on on lowering cholesterol and all the other great things garlic does for us. So if we take garlic and we add it to something at the end where it's not even really cooking anymore, the garlic gets warmed through, the flavor comes out, but it doesn't destroy the medicinal properties of the garlic. If you have a a garlic bias or phobia and you think of garlic stinking, garlic is one of the most incredibly good-smelling things in the world. It's garlic mixed with other stuff and cooked the wrong way and overcooked, or that is allowed to go rancid in oil and things like that. It has that terrible flavor or terrible smell. Fresh garlic has a beautiful aroma. There's never been a time in my life I haven't chopped up garlic and been mixing it with something, and I'd have my wife and son go, "What are you doing?" And all it is is garlic. Uh, garlic, you know, is a wonderful ingredient. Try to add that at the end. Anything that's going to cook quickly and overcook, add at the stir fries. Here's a perfect example. People make a stir fry, they put all the vegetables in together, and one of the vegetables is a snow pea. A snow pea should be sautéed for maybe, maybe 60 to 70 seconds. But people throw the snow peas in there with things that can cook longer, like let's say green beans and celery, uh, and the snow peas are just mush when the uh, green beans and celery are, are perfect. So if you have something that's delicate, hold off until the end to add it. That's just a simple thing. Um, next is, as far as cooking in your home, if you have the option to have a gas stove, you will be so much happier than an electric stove. The heat is easier to control. You can get it hotter. You have more uh, ability to keep the heat high. Uh, even without going like commercial-grade, restaurant-grade stoves, a Basic consumer-level gas stove is 100 times better than a consumer-grade electric. If you're stuck with electric, and here I am, I don't have a gas option for my cooking, um, you really want to use one of the newer, the glass-top flat stoves. Those coil things that have been around for years and years and years suck. They heat unevenly. They never stay level. If you're, I'm not saying to go out and throw your stove away, but whenever you're getting a new stove, if you have a gas option, gas first, second option, uh, radiant heat, flat top, glass top uh, uh, stove, and uh, only because you have to settle for it. I often will like if I'm going to do stir fry in a walk, and I want to get the walk really hot. I have one of those great big uh, fish fryer, turkey fryer, uh, uh, gas uh, cookers. I'll take, I'll go outside, I'll set it on low, relatively low compared to you know what I would do if I was uh, frying fish with a big giant. Uh, like a big fish fry with a bunch of people coming over, and I cook on my walk outside with that, just because it's so hard to really cook at the right temperatures for a walk indoors. So there's another thing. Next, parley isn't just for garnish. Cook with it, for God's sakes. Parsley does so many wonderful things. I was talking about garlic before. For, a, for just a, a unique seasoning to use to cook anything, chop fine uh, parsley, basil, and garlic in equal amounts. Right and, and not equal amounts because you know, like you have your parsley. It's a great beef. once chopped up. Right once you got it all chopped fine. I mean really finely chopped. Get your your cleaver or your butcher knife or, or whatever and I mean just chop the heck out of that stuff. The basil and the garlic looks very finely chopped. Same amount of garlic. Mix that together. Rub that on meat. Rub that on chicken. You know in your stews in your soups. Chopped parsley at the beginning and is a is a is a flavor adder at the end. Here's the thing with parsley: when you're doing pot roasts, when you're doing stews, when you're doing anything like that, generally we cut like the either flat Italian or the curled parsley that's the top. We throw the stems away. Take your, cut the top off your parsley, tie a piece of uh, string around it, you know, baker's string or whatever, to keep it all bundled together, and take the whole bundle of your parsley stems and cook that in your stew or your soup or with your pot roast. And at the end, since they are so fibrous, take them out. But the flavor that adds is amazing. Cook with parsley. Uh, really great uh, little tip there. Toward the end here, um, if something seems like a good idea, freaking try it. You know, if you want to, if you want to make a soup with pork, uh, pork roast, sausage, and beef, and, and it sounds ridiculous, try it. Yeah, whatever, do whatever seems like a good idea. If it's my wife was like, well, what if I make it and it doesn't taste good? Don't do it again. You learn something. You know not to do. But then I've done all this. Just try it. That's how new things happen. The next thing is um, watch cooking shows, but focus on their techniques more than their recipes. When you see them put certain uh, combinations together or cook in certain ways, that technique is far more valuable than a recipe. If I give you a recipe, you can make something, one thing. If I give you a series of techniques... Your options are unlimited. So the cooking shows, all these shows like that, uh, look at the techniques. Look at the combinations. Look at the methods that they're using. Far more important than the recipe itself. And next, remember that traditions exist for a freaking reason. Okay, I I get like, when I watch cooking shows, when I start to get like, oh my God, I just can't stand this person one well. Well, this is my version of Irish stew, you know, Irish lamb stew. No, there isn't, you know what, you don't have a version of Irish lamb stew. You might add some things to it and all, but Irish stew, by its traditional recipe, has been made that way for thousands of years. There's a reason. Okay? Basic hummus. I go to restaurants. We have a wonderful type of hummus. Really? And they sun-dried tomatoes and chopped up black olives and big old hunks of garlic. It's not that it doesn't even taste good. But it, it's so far from hummus that it's just not hummus anymore. So it's not that you can't add things. It's not that you can't embellish things. But if you want to make something that's traditional, like, a, like an Irish stew, like a hummus, like um, a lot of traditional Oriental cooking and Asian cooking, learn to do it the simple way first, the way it's been done for hundreds or thousands of years. Do it that way. When I started teaching people on this show how to make beer bread, I said, there's all this stuff you can do to it. The first time you make it, make plain Jane white beer bread, and when I said to do soda bread today, I gave you the plain Jane way to do soda bread. Soda bread, by the way, Irish soda bread that I talked about is traditionally done with wheat because it was done by, by peasants. Let me kind of finish up telling you a little bit about that because that will drive home the traditional aspect. Why does soda bread exist in the first place? Why Why is it there? Not because housewives that were making Irish soda bread back in the day were too lazy to knead dough. Didn't have time to knead dough and let it rise. It was because that, especially, and it really actually has more roots with the Irish that came to America than in Ireland itself. Even though it's hugely popular today, I've done some reading on this stuff, and it was really, really popular on the American frontier. What were these people lacking? They had flour. You know, they had buttermilk because they had cows, and everybody had cows. And if you didn't, you could you bartered for it. But so since there was milk and butter and cheese, there was buttermilk. You know, so they had all the ingredients. Yeast wasn't like it was really that hard to come by. Yeast is easy to do if you know how to, you know, to make a starter and you can keep propagating it over and over again. What they didn't have was ovens. Most people cooked in hearths or on open fires. Or, you know, on, on, uh, you know, kind of like a fire-based, uh, stovetop or something like that. An oven at the time was a luxury. So how do you bake bread without an oven? Well, you mix up the Irish soda bread recipe and you put it into a Dutch oven with a lid on it. You set it on coals and put a few coals on the lid. And now everybody can make bread, whether they have a oven or not. So these things were created around tradition for a reason. And thousands and thousands of years in some cases and hundreds in others have gone into getting it right. And when we start messing around with it before we understand the base, we do stupid things. Like Emeril, I watched a show with him where he was pouring maple syrup on Brussels sprouts. I it's just and he was and I don't remember what he was called, but it. it's like my version of this Dutch dish. And I'm like, my wife is Dutch, and her family is Dutch, and no one in Holland that I know, or the Netherlands, has ever poured maple syrup on a freaking Brussels sprout ever. So understand and respect traditions in your cooking. It doesn't mean you don't experiment. Remember what I said. If it seems like a good idea, give it a try. But just remember, by the time that you add cranberries and walnuts to your Irish soda bread, it's not Irish soda bread anymore. It's Irish soda bread with... And I think that if we do that, we'll get a lot more of a respect from the traditions that were handed down. Because remember, cooking isn't just about sharing and eating. It's also about preserving traditions. I'm sure your family has some wonderful recipes that have been handed down. So I hope this was a good show. I know it doesn't seem like the survival podcast, but if you think about it, most of the stuff I gave you to cook with today... Part or all is provided by our hunting, our fishing, our homesteading, our local farmers markets, all the things that we the the things that we store, the pastas and the beans and stuff like that. I know I wasn't real specific with the ingredients. You don't have to be. Just start see to me you'll become a better cook if you don't every time you cook, sit down and go, one cup of this and one cup of that and one No. No. Understand the basic ingredients that go into it and look at it and think, you know what, this is stew, I have some tarragon growing in the backyard, go out and cut a couple big pieces of tarragon, tie a string around it, throw that in your stew, and at the end, pull it out just like you pull out Bailey's. See what the difference is. Start with things very, very basic, very, very traditional, and then when you make changes, add one or two things and see what the actual effect is, so you know what the effect is. Become a great cook. Because if you become a great cook, you're going to have more fun in your garden. You're going to have more fun with your homesteading. Hunting is going to mean more to you. Fishing is going to be mean more to you. Going to your local farmer's market and buying fresh produce and fresh meats are going to mean more to you. Preserving what you have will mean more to you. So, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. a better way